Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Sinister Sissies Podcast, your guide to true crime, horror, and everything man-on-man and macabre. I'm Jared, your master of depravity, and drumroll, it's a delight to introduce you to the new co-host of Sinister Sissies, indie horror filmmaker, Sam Hamilton. Welcome! Hello, hi, (laughs) that's me, ready to get sinister and sissy, double Uh, trouble. He, look, he looks very nervous and scared. Look, looks aren't deceiving, I am. So be <laughs> gentle, please, people. Also, the over 50 emails that I received from people wanting to be co-hosts on Sinister Sissies was amazing. Uh, if you are still interested in contributing to some episodes, pop me an email and just pitch me episode ideas. So we can always have three of us... Uh, around this one microphone, we might need to expand the setup. Three is a good number. Three is a good number. Uh, and if you ever want to come on and, you know, present on an issue that you care a lot about, let me know. Today's episode is on a very infamous figure in serial killer history. It is on John Wayne Gacy. Now, we're doing this a year after Sinister uh, Sissies launched. Um, and Sinister Sissies started its first episode with Jeffrey Dahmer. And I feel like there is uh, a link between Jeffrey Dahmer and John Wayne Gacy. Um, they're both both the most prolific gay serial killers um, of history, I would say. Yeah, where do we go from here? Well, we need someone uh, quite prolific because John Wayne Gacy, um, in his tirade, murdered at least 33 young men. Uh, between the years of 1972 and 1978, and likely sexually assaulted or raped several more. So it's not going to be a cheery episode no, as we no. go through this this horrible uh, series of murders that were committed by John Wayne Gacy. He's like he's like one of those serial killers. You know how like when you watch films, it's like he killed 38 people. It's like fictional horror films, of course. Mm. Real serial killers, it's very rare that they kill more than, like, five or six people. So, you know, he's... Yeah, and I think there does seem to be a trend, and as we'll see with this very much like Jeffrey Dahmer, that the reason why he was able to get uh, a count so high as he did seems to relate to social values to do with homosexuality in his time, which is such an interesting thing to think of, that... that, that the the prejudice around homosexuality was actually utilized to his advantage. Yeah, and he knew how to utilize. He was a yeah, he was a charismatic, people pleasing man. Yeah, I think it's that charismatic side of being a sociopath. So let's start with uh, Gacy's early life. Gacy was born in Chicago on the seventeenth of March, nineteen forty two. Uh, he was always a bit of an effeminate boy. Something we can relate to. Yes, yeah, so a sissy as his dad actually called yes, him. So a sinister sissy. One would could say he was on brand. Top on tier brand. Sinister sissy. <laughs> uh, he he was effeminate, and his father, as as you indicated, was not a very kind man. Used to physically uh, abuse Gacy, and also beat the shit out of Gacy's mother. Um, when Gacy was seven years old, uh, a family friend molested him and he didn't tell anyone until quite later in life. Gacy also suffered from major issues with his weight, which was traced to a congenital heart condition, um, which was undiagnosed for, for a long period of time. And Sam, you brought up uh, before we started recording that there are also uh, two other things that happened. Yeah, we had two traumatic head injuries. Uh, one when he was seven at the hands of his dad, who, after a little disagreement, decided to beat him unconscious of a broomstick. Mm. You no know, five-star parenting. Mm. Um, and then when he was 11, he got injured by a swing set and was, I think, also knocked unconscious then. 
And it's interesting because Richard Ramirez, another serial killer, had the exa- exactly the same injury, and you know they both ended up. I know, and I know through looking kind of just the the, the correlations between certain things and, and criminal behavior and violent behavior that that an, an acquired brain injury is a risk factor for violent behavior because it's tied to at least well, my understanding of this might be incorrect. It's tied to impulse control in that if you have an acquired brain injury. You have issues with impulse control. If you get angry, um, you tend to just act out violently. And I think we've seen discussions of that in kind of like football and boxing and all that sort of stuff where they've got these correlations where, you know, if you get smacked in the head a lot, uh, you tend to be violent later in life. Yeah, it's very common to have like dramatic personality changes after an acquired brain injury. So Mm. I think, I mean, so we had, he had those two brain injuries um, and this congenital heart condition, which resulted at the age of 11, he was hospitalized for several months with unexplained blackouts. Gacy's father thought that he was faking the blackouts and just said it was um, him trying to get attention. And it took five years when Gacy was 16 for him to actually be diagnosed with a blood clot on the brain. So you can get a picture just from those tales that Gacy's childhood was not uh, picture perfect. Um, Definitely not. No. <laughs> and that a lot of these health issues may be playing a role in his later life. He missed a lot of school because he was hospitalized and dropped out. Um, and eventually he got sick of his parents and left um, to the West uh, to uh, Las Vegas. Las Vegas he worked as a mortuary assistant where he slept in a cot in yes. the back near the embalming room which I'm kind of into it I mean I'm kind of wondering what the go was did he request that did someone just take pity on him because he was homeless and if anyone knows please let us know how the cot in the mortuary came to be because I feel like that's not that's not a regular thing I, I know but they must get late night deliveries and that's stuff. true I guess yeah. yeah I guess if it's yeah you're working I would do that if anyone's listening and they own a mortuary and they need someone if, if I can do like rent free in the back of a mortuary oh that's so it's so on brand for me I would love to do that Look, it's very on brand this is my first time in uh, Jared's apartment there's yeah. lots of um, off kilter imagery in my eyeline right now so there's I, a I, giant skull made of bunnies there's a happy couple shooting themselves in the head. You know, yeah. we've, got, we've got an assortment of goodies here, in case anyone was wondering. I have a lot of nice art. Look, you do. I, I approve. <laughs> uh, so he's working as a mortuary assistant, and it was whilst working in the mortuary that I think Gacy realised for the first time that he was a bit abnormal or that he could push the boundaries of what was socially acceptable. On one occasion, uh, after the morticians had left, Gacy crawled into the coffin of a teenage boy who had passed away and embraced and caressed the body. And we'll see later that that is kind of Gacy's type. He liked young men between the ages of, say, 14 and 20. That was kind of his his sexual demographic that he was attracted to. To my knowledge, he never actually killed anyone over 21. He tried to kill a 26-year-old, but, Mm. you know. Yeah, I mean, he had... There's a name for that. I hate when they make distinctions between these sort of things. It's like hebophile or something, or ebophile. Yeah, it's like like when, yeah, I think it starts with E. Yeah, it's when you're into, like, young boys, but, like, they're sort of... They're at least post-pubescent, but they're, like, teetering on being a little on the... Illegal side. He yes. He he was into. I mean, I, I don't want to say twinky, but twinky-ish. Problematically twinky. Yeah. Look, let's <laughs> let's just say he'd be subscribed to many twink websites. I'm sure. Helix. If, yeah, Helix Studios. He'd be a Helix man for sure. Um, I, I just said that. <laughs> he um, he's now on record. It's great. La, 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 la. <laughs> um, he so he he embraced this teenage boy and surprisingly. This shocked the hell out of him. He didn't realise he was capable of doing something so, I guess, vulgar or transgressive. It was so shocking that he left his job at the mortuary and left to go to Illinois, where he enrolled in business school um, and began working at his um, father's business. Yeah, so he was working with his father briefly, and then he got very involved in the Democratic Party, I believe. 
And yes. Yes, his dad wasn't a big fan of that. Believe it or not, daddy was a Republican, so... Um... Daddy was a Republican, Gacy was part of the Democratic Party. Also, Gacy was part of this, this kind of business organization, this commerce organization, uh, called the United States Junior Chamber, also known as the Waterloo Jaycees. Now, I'm going to bring this up because I went down a conspiracy theory rabbit hole uh, involving uh, Pizzagate and key figures of the Democratic Party and their links to this nefarious uh, organization. Because other members of the Waterloo Jaycees were Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, Ronald Reagan, John Wayne Gacy, and also the serial killer Edmund Kemper. Mm. Uh, there were a lot of rumours about this organisation that it was something for businessmen to join and do things like wife swapping or enjoy um, hiring sex workers, sharing pornography, yeah. uh, whilst also... These are the these are the chamber's uh, key tenets. Whilst also uh, accepting that faith in God gives meaning and purpose to human life, that the brotherhood of man transcends the sovereignty of nature uh, of nations, that economic justice can best be won by free men through free enterprise, that governments shall be the, of the law rather than the man. Ooh, I don't know what that means. That Earth's great treasure lies in human personality, and that service to humanity is the great work of life. Okay. So there's all these theories online from right-wing conspiracy theorists that this is like part of the Illuminati well, I mean, connection. It, de- it definitely does. When you read more about his connections with a lot of the JC members and stuff, there's definitely a cult-like underpinning to it all. Yeah, I don't know what they do <laughs> exactly. Well, it's basically just a club of successful young business people, I suppose, or people who are entre- entrepreneurial young business people, I should say. And just occasionally they turn out to be serial killers. Just every now and again. Or Bill Clinton. Every now and again, you know. Well, you know, for all we know. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Um, so, yeah, if you want to go down, you know, Democrats, Illuminati confirmed type websites, uh, look up the Waterloo Jaycees. Yeah, and it was around this time that he met uh, his first wife, uh, Marilyn Myers. The couple married in 1964, and Marilyn and Gacy had two children. He was a community-oriented man. Um, As I said, he worked in his father's business. His father... uh, Worked in a Kentucky Fried Chicken franchise in Waterloo, Iowa. He ends up managing three KFCs of his wife because the family were, I guess, KFC moguls. He mm. married into some money there. Yeah. He was on a very good salary. I heard it was the equivalent of 115 grand. Oof. You know, managing those three restaurants. KFC. Oh, three restaurants, I guess. Yeah. Well, I guess three restaurants and you're like the manager. So, you know. So, you know, he was doing well. Gacy began to explore his attractions to teenage boys. And I say explore, I should really just say he he started acting as the sexual predator that he was. Yes. He opened a little club in his home's basement um, where he allowed teenagers to kind of hang out and drink and play pool. But only boys. Only boys. It's kind of like, what's that recent film that came out with Octavia Spencer? Oh, Ma. Ma. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's a more yeah. sinister, pederast version of Ma. Exactly. That's a, that's a very good analogy. I like that. <laughs> uh, during this time, less funny, during this time, Gacy forced many of these young men to perform sexual acts on him. Many of them worked at the KFC with him. He used to ply them with alcohol and drugs and force them to perform oral sex. In August of 1967, one of the boys that Gacy abused was 15-year-old Donald Voorhees. After he abused him, um, Voorhees, um, for several months, thought about the fact that that this sort of stuff had happened and eventually told his father. We'll get into, in a moment, the weirdness around um, Gacy's victims, in particular this idea of... Gacy being viewed as an actual, actually a criminal predator and not just like a sleazy homo. Um, that 
that stereotype around homosexuality, I think, played a, a major role of how he managed to get away with sexually assaulting would, with so many boys. It's definitely the only reason that he went so many years undetected, I think. In this case, um, because uh, Donald Voorhees, his father, was quite influential, um, the police did take the, the situation in this case somewhat seriously. On the December of 1968, um, Gacy pled guilty to oral sodomy, now, this is interesting. These are the old-school sodomy laws, so it didn't matter if it was consensual or not. Yeah. The fact that there was oral sodomy between um, between two men uh, was enough to make out the charge, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Following this, Gacy's wife divorced him and took the kids. She, and... actually, she left him the day that he was convicted, and he never saw the kids ever again. Yeah. I don't know why I just painted her as some, like, demon. No, no, but... good for her. But, I mean, you know, she got out of there, like, <laughs> ASAP. Yeah, I think she made the right decision there. So, he was sentenced to 10 years, as you said, mm -hmm. but he was actually out pretty early, like, about 18 months later. I've got down... I've got less than two years, so that sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. Less than two years um, in his sentence. Part of that was because he was he's seen as something of a, a model prisoner he was heavily involved with kind of unionizing the prison workers and he negotiated a pay raise for them um he increased membership to that jc's organization <laughs> yeah, from a vin prison there's a hustler <laughs> oh god i haven't gone down the um uh, are like Epstein and Weinstein involved in this organization, but it, it sounds like they might Look, be. Wouldn't be shocked. <laughs> um, he was an advocate for the improvement of conditions of prisoners. Um, he was involved in the installation of a miniature golf course in the recreation yard. Where is this prison, by the way? It sounds amazing. Well, look, thanks to him anyway. Um, um, he was also, you mentioned that he was like a cook. Yeah, he became the head cook. And he was even on a TV special, I guess. Um, the prison, I guess, were... It was a Christmas special. He was featured in a Christmas special where the prison was showcasing, I guess, like the positive activities that the, pr that the prisoners undertake whilst incarcerated, and he was interviewed. I'm Tom Gacy. I'm from Waterloo, Iowa. And you're a man of some authority here. What, the, what is your title? Well, I'm first cook in the kitchen, and I run the, uh, the morning meal and the afternoon meal in the kitchen. John, how long have you been here? I've been here now a year and about two weeks. Why am I asking how, how long do you plan to take up residence here? Well, I hope to be getting out sometime in May. Well, good. Good. You're going to continue as a, as a cook? Use that as a, as a profession? You right. Have? This is my profession before I came in. All right. Food service. Well, now, how about uh, Christmas time? You do anything special for the guys? Uh, you, what are you planning for all Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, for example? Well, Christmas Eve, what, uh, the food service department, under the direction of Mr. John Brimer, We'll prepare stockings that we hand out. Well, actually, they're, they're paper bags that'll have fruit, an apple and an orange, and a, a box of bridge mix candy. Mm -hmm. And this is all from the staff here. They donate this. Then in the cell houses at night on Christmas Eve, we will serve cookies and hot chocolate to the men in the cell houses. This is around 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. I'm such an advocate for, like, prison reform and criminal justice reform, and this is, like, the worst example ever. <laughs> well, look, I'm sure, like, 98% of people in prison do not have personality disorders to this extent, yes. or probably at all. So, um... So, that's actually important, because it was during his first student prison that he was diagnosed as having antisocial personality disorder. For those who don't know, antisocial personality disorder is kind of the more modern version of... What started off as psychopathy evolved into um, sociopathy, which evolved into antisocial personality disorder. There's a lot of contention in the forensic psych literature about this diagnosis because you can only get a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder if you've actually um, done a lot of antisocial things. Yeah, which when he, at the time he was diagnosed, it was just, it was the sodomy, I guess, that yeah. was in there, so... And he, he wasn't admitting to the, the corpse stuff or anything no. like that at this stage. This is like pre-murder, basically. But they were still able to pick up that he, he lacked a degree of empathy. Um, and one of the key features of the, the more high-functioning antisocial personality disorders is that, that cunning, charismatic, charismatic side. Yeah. Um, that ability to manipulate people in a way that, that um, gets people over to your side. 
um, which I suppose being not emotionally connected to someone probably makes it easier to do that because you're less invested. Once Gacy was released on parole, he actually offended soon after. He assaulted a teenage boy um, and the charges didn't actually end up going ahead because the teenage boy refused to show up um, when it came to the main court date. Yeah. Now, his parole officer should have known about this, but it was never communicated back to the parole officer, and he got away with offending again. Gacy settled into his new home in Norwood Park, Chicago. This is the infamous address, um, 8213 West Summerdale Avenue, where Gacy's murders would take place and the bodies would be stored. Yes, well, it's on the market now, allegedly, and Jared wants to move in. I so. do! Okay, so the, so the house itself was demolished. So I'm not a weirdo. I don't want to be in the okay, house. Let's just, let's just note that he buried um, the majority of the bodies inside the house. Yes. So, you know, on your property, there's still definitely going to be some sort of DNA fragments. Of they demolished the house and they got all the bodies out. And it was just the land. As far and, as I know. And then they <laughs> rebuilt a new house on it. And this new house was recently up for sale. There was all this controversy about it. But I think it would be a wonderful place to live. And you could give tours. That's true. You can make a little business, but also haven't you seen Poltergeist? When you live, when you live on top of a burial ground, bad things happen to you. So it's either this place or my little um, bunk bed out from the embalming room at the mortuary. <laughs> they're my two. Well, look. They're my two options. I'll go with option A, thank you. <laughs> Um, Gacy got a job in construction. Uh, this is also where Gacy began uh, working as a clown. Now, he started having an interest in clowns whilst he was in prison. He was a painter and he enjoyed painting a particular character known as Pogo the Clown. And this character of Pogo the Clown stuck in Gacy's head after he left prison and he actually joined the Jolly Joker Club which was a club set up for clowns to perform at birthday parties and hospitals. Um, he taught himself how to apply clown makeup and turned himself into the famous Pogo the Clown. <laughs> people when you say John Wayne Gacy everyone immediately just thinks of this like no one no one really knows how he killed his victims who his hmm. victims were everyone's just like is that the clown guy yeah but I you know I guess especially the last couple of years we've had a bit of you know with the whole you clown. know with it yeah um, and the clown sightings and stuff like that it's been a bit of a yeah, that was a weird thing what year was that maybe 2016 yeah, that was just a bizarre thing. And then happened. there was Wrinkles the Clown, who's now in a documentary made about him. Oh, yeah. He was that guy that you could pay um, to dress up in clown makeup and scare people. But he would take it to the next level. Um, oh. So, you know, we've had a bit of clown fixation the last five years. Uh, so he's, he started performing. Um, and again, it shows his charismatic attitude that people thought, you know, people didn't raise red flags about the fact that he was acting as a clown. Um some people knew about his history, particularly his abuse of teenage boys, and were still unworried about the fact that he was acting as a clown in children's birthday parties. I just like denial is probably the key element here. I feel like a lot of people just probably pretended it never happened, didn't want to think about it, didn't want to believe it, so just... And it was just too taboo to even... Speaking of denial, uh, Gacy had a second wife. <laughs> <laughs> By the name of Carol Hoff, uh, who he married in 1972. Now, Carol's a bit interesting because she knew about his crimes as well in the past, but she mm. put them aside because she wanted to um, begin a relationship with Gacy. Um, however, in after a couple of years of marriage, the history and the new events that started to come up 
started to raise red flags with her. She confronted Gacy about his attractions, particularly after she found some gay porn mags at the house. Uh, Gacy told her he was bisexual and she left him because of that in 1976. Yeah, well, also apparently in 75, when they had a discussion about something similar, he said that this would be like they slept together on Mother's Day that year, and he Mm. said this will be the last time that we sleep together. Yeah. So, you know, I I guess the marriage was dying a very quick death in that eight-month, 12-month period, you know? Well, let's, let's... Quit the backstory and let's get to Gacy's first kill. On the 2nd of January 1972, Gacy would kill his first victim, Timothy McCoy. McCoy was 16 years old um, and he was found by Gacy sleeping at a bus terminal in Chicago. Gacy approached him offered to show him around town and allowed the young McCoy to sleep at Gacy's house. I think it's actually kind of, this one's kind of interesting because it's sort of speculated there was a bit of a romantic Mm. thing between these two. And obviously Jerry's going to go about to go into the details of how the murder took place, but it just makes me wonder um, if the alleged misunderstanding that led to the first murder never happened, would he, would John Wayne Gacy be John Wayne Gacy? Well, it's interesting. So the only account that we have of this first kill obviously comes just from Gacy. There's no witnesses. We've got no other way of confirming this. Spoiler, he's dead. Yeah. And, well, yes, being the first murder victim, Timothy McCoy also can't give his version of events. Here is how Gacy says um, it all went down. Gacy said he woke up the following morning to see McCoy standing with a knife at his bedroom door. Gacy assumed McCoy was trying to either kill him or rob him, and so charged towards McCoy, grabbed the knife, twisted the knife from McCoy's wrist, and started beating and kicking McCoy. McCoy fought back, kicked Gacy in the stomach, in which Gacy grabbed the youth, wrestled him to the floor, and then stabbed him repeatedly in the chest as he straddled his body. Gacy then walked to the kitchen to realise that McCoy had prepared him breakfast and that this all was a misunderstanding. During the killing of McCoy, Gacy realised that he enjoyed the process of murdering the boy so much that he orgasmed as he was doing it. Now this indicates Gacy um, had a condition which sometimes referred to as sexual sadism which is a very, very broad category and not meaning to, you know, kink shame people that are into kind of power play or anything like that. But there's power play and there's knife play. So. Yeah. Sexual sadism is just people who have sexual pleasure in response to inflicting pain on others. So it's not just submissive and dominant type relationships. It is actually causing pain to others. And Gacy hadn't realized up until this point that this is something that would give him pleasure and it's this drive for this type of pleasure that explains all of his other kills. He took McCoy's body and he buried it in a crawl space under his home. Now this would become a pattern for Gacy. His home would become the place where he stored most of the bodies until it was full and then he had to resort to the nearby river. Is that bloody crawl space. Just imagine, you know, going over for dinner at Gacy's house, the smell. Oh, God, yeah. Like, I read that people did always comment that the house really stacked, and he'd be like, oh, yeah, it's like pipe. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Big problems. In 1974, Gacy left his construction job as an employee and started his own contracting business um, called PDM Contractors. Uh, Gacy told his friends that he would keep the costs low of running this contractor business by hiring teenage boys. Surprise, surprise. And obviously, he also saw this as a great avenue to target teenage boys as a sexual predator yeah which is just an odd you know he really used his business to find his victims which he was really shameless in like 
the people he targeted because there were so many ways that he could have been caught that he managed to evade as you know um by pure luck really there's, there's a clear connection between these boys who were abused or disappeared and gacy Gacy would kill two boys between the years of 1974 and 1975. In July of 1975, Gacy arrived at Antichucci's home uh, when the youth was alone. He plied him with alcohol, wrestled him to the floor, and cuffed his hand cu- and cuffed the boy's hands behind his back. Uh, Antonucci uh, managed to get out of the handcuffs, and he was actually a member of the wrestling team, so he wrestled Gacy to the ground. Um, and escaped. Interestingly, Antonucci did not report any of this to the police. And I think this says the really interesting stuff that we mentioned earlier about, I don't know if he necessarily viewed himself as a victim here. I think he thought, and we, we saw this with other victims of Gacy, that they viewed him as a predatory homosexual, but not in a way that necessarily meant that they had to report it to police. Which is odd, because, yeah, they just saw him as this weird kind of, like, seedy queer man. Mm. But, you know, like, oh, he handcuffed me. Oh, he, you know, he tried to, like, strangle me. Oh, that's just John. I saw saw one thing that the boys used to often joke, don't take a drink from Gacy. Yeah, well, it's weird that it was just so known that he would, you know, like partaking these completely inappropriate behaviours and people would just kind of be shaken by it but just accept it. And I think there's there's a couple of factors happening there. Clearly, you know, sexual assault and rape wasn't taken seriously for either gender um, in the 1970s. But especially man-to-man, I guess. Yeah, I think it's that thing of if somebody was molested or abused by a man the question often became, why did you let him do that to you? Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's possibly how the teenage boys viewed this sort of stuff, which was if they managed to get away, they got out of the situation and so there was no need to pursue it further. Yeah, and I suppose they probably, you know, given that they were like, you know, kind of like hanging out with him usually, um, usually via coercion of like um, being shown pornography or given alcohol or whatnot, but they would, like, I guess they would willingly hang out with him, so they were probably afraid, like, you know, assuming that their claims against him weren't going to be taken that seriously because they'd put themselves in the situation, even though, hmm. obviously, they hadn't put themselves in the situation to be, like, raped or potentially murdered. There is some speculation that at least for some of these boys might have been undertaking sex work. Yeah. Um, or there was an offer of sex work, which also, I guess, in their mind stigmatized what they were doing so they didn't feel comfortable going to police well i actually read a story which i can't 100 percent verify but apparently gacy told some of the boys that he was part of like i guess a government operation um studying homosexual urges and that he was like testing them yeah probably we're gonna be killed now the jaycees are gonna, are gonna come for us but yes I don't, and i guess then there's also the whole element of you know gacy often employed these boys so it's like their boss so it's like someone in a position of extreme power over their lives their income and again i i can, can totally understand that a teenage boy in 1970s middle america maybe doesn't understand what sexual abuse is exactly even in the present it's statistically a lot less common for young men to report sexual assault so i mean Take this back 40 plus years and it's going to be even less likely than less likely. So mm. during this period of time, we know that two young men were killed by Gacy. One, an unidentifiable victim in 1974. Another, a 17-year-old boy named John Bukovic, who um, was killed in 1975. He worked for Gacy. Parents alerted the police that they found Gacy to be a kind of sketchy character and the police did not follow up on that report. 
And there's a lot of police incompetence when it comes to Gacy's kills. It's definitely like the standout case out of any serial killer case I've ever read about where, yeah, the police and their like level of incompetence is really what allowed things to slip through the cracks for so long. And it's just, it teeters on bizarre, really. Gacy's killings really ramped up between the years of 1976 and 1978, what he referred to as his cruising years. This occurred after his second divorce with his wife after she found out, well, after she heard that he was bisexual. So numerous were Gacy's victims at this time that the easiest thing for me to do is to just begin to list them. So he killed Daryl Sampson, 18, in March of 1976, Randall Reffitt, 15, and Sam Stapleton, 14, on the same day in May of 1976. Yeah, he really did go for it during this era. There was there's more than one occasion where he killed, you know, like two people in like one day. Michael Bonin, 17, on June of 1976. William Carroll, 16, June of 1976. We don't know the details of their particular circumstances or their particular murder, but we can extrapolate Gacy's approach to these killings based on people that escaped and also his own admissions. Gacy would lure his victims back to his home with promises of alcohol or money in exchange for sex. Gacy said the easiest way to get victims in a vulnerable state was to pretend to do a magic trick. He would make them put on handcuffs behind their back and say that he would magically make the handcuffs disappear. But of course, once they were handcuffed and restrained, he would then start abusing them. He would stuff socks and underwear in their mouth. He would torture them in various ways and molest them. And the most common uh, way of killing them was he would strangle them to death. Yeah, it's actually, it's because aside from the first victim, he never, there was never any knife play involved. He would mm. always strangle or make, make a little makeshift, um, like tourniquet and like, yeah, like I guess like garrot, garrot them. Yeah. Garrot them. So yeah, he had a very, he had a very strict MO that he really deviated from. Which is interesting. I, I said, I think I said earlier that, that Gacy differs from Jeffrey Dahmer in a number of ways. Jeffrey Dahmer was a product killer. He killed because he wanted the bodies. Gacy wanted to rape the men. It was it was the the main aim of Gacy was to rape them, and then the killing was just to get them out of the way. Yeah, is my understanding. He would occasionally use chloroform before he strangled them, just to make it easier on himself as he was killing. Yeah, so it's not like he, yeah, often because the victims would be unconscious, etc. It's not like he was always getting off on, like, the violent aspect of it, generally. But I guess he was getting off on the violent aspect in terms of he would sexually abuse them. Mm. Um, But it's, you know, yeah, sometimes he would kill them in, I guess, more subdued ways after the abuse was over. The murders of 76 continued past June. He killed an unidentified young man in late June of 76. He killed James Harkison, 16, in August of 76. He killed Rick Johnston, 17, in August of 76. Johnston was on his way to a rock concert. This said that he was going to call his mum when he arrived, and he never did. There were two more unidentified victims killed in the fall of 76. Again, you had uh, a two-in-one-day with Kenneth Parker, 16, Michael Marino, 14, who were friends who went missing on the same day in October of 76. You had William Bundy, 19, who worked for Gacy, who disappeared in October of 76. And you have Gregory Gottsick, 17, also worked for Gacy, who disappeared on December of 76. See, I think this is a sign that he was really starting to just get very impulsive and sloppy because, you know, it got, it got to the point this year where he needed to kill so much that he was literally just killing his own employees. Yeah. Um, and it's know. just, when we talk about 33 victims, I think, so this is just one year and we've got two more years. Yeah. Right? Let's keep in mind, this is just one year and he's just methodically, uh, almost monthly, 
Yeah, like killing someone. Because it was, it was more of like a special occasion thing, like prior to the divorce. But once she was out of the picture, he was just full spree. Yeah. Just going for it. At, at least every month, sometimes twice a month, sometimes twice on the same day, he was killing victims. Obviously, he had a number of bodies that he had to deal with at this stage. 26 of his victims were placed in the crawl space in his house. Um, three more were found underneath his home. And we'll see with his very final victims, he, he ran out of room in the house and he started to dump them in a nearby river. Neighbours and people who came to the house started to note a horrible stench. Um, he often blamed it on water damage or other factors to do with the house and claimed that he would try and get rid of the odour. Well, he actually got one of his employees to sprinkle lemon juice in the, in the crawl space, mm. um, which is kind of, you know, imagine finding out after the fact that you're, you were being paid to stand on top of dead bodies and cover pour, up the smell, pour lemon juice on top of them. And I can't, I imagine some of these graves were quite shallow as well. So you're probably pretty damn close to the real thing, you know. Casey, demonstrating his cruelty, um, would often join in searches for the missing teens in order to keep up his image with the community, particularly the two employees that he killed. He um, would pretend to be out searching for the missing teens. Well, that was such a big thing. To, his ego was such a big thing to him. That's a very commonly cited thing as people say that he loved doing good things, but he loved being known to do good things. So, you know, he loved getting the credit for doing good things. So, I mean, he didn't love doing good things really, did he? He loved mm. um, the validation that came from being like this upstanding member in the community. He loved getting credit for things. And maybe that is an aspect of control. Yeah, like for sure. getting esteem, you're controlling the public, I guess. And this is something he never had growing up, you know, where his dad was extremely controlling of him. Young men who worked for Gacy actually lived in his house. Uh, at various points in time, even though that they were stuffed with bodies. One of them was 18-year-old David Cram. He moved into the Gacy house in July of 1976. The day after Cram moved into the house, Gacy tried his handcuff trick, uh, and Cram managed to escape and kick him off, knowing that Gacy was trying to rape him. Strangely enough, he stayed in the house. Uh, after that period of time. A month later, Gacy again tried to rape Cram in his bedroom. Uh, he said something to the effect of, Dave, you really don't know who I am. Maybe it would be good if you give me what I want. Cram again resisted Gacy's advances and soon after moved out and left PDM contractors. Interestingly, as soon as Cram moved out, another young person moved in. What a surprise. Mm. I'm assuming they were living rent-free. Well, there must have been some perks to stay there. I mean, like, look, I understand not wanting to come forward in the 70s about being sexually assaulted by a man, but mm. to remain living with one after they've handcuffed you and threatened you like that, yeah, there must have been something in it for them. I think I think that, that must have been the only incentive, that they could live rent-free in the house whilst they were working for him. Um, well, yeah, and we know he was paying them cheap because, like, the, the whole reason that he was allegedly hiring the teenage boys was to cost-cut, so, you know... Mm. Then came the murders of 1977. During that time, Gacy killed John Sizek, 19, who was another employee of Gacy, in January of 77. Two unidentified victims in early 77. John Prestige, 20, who was visiting friends from Michigan in March of 77. Matthew Bowman, 19, in July of 77. Robert Gilroy, 18, who was the son of a police sergeant, was killed in September of 77. John Mownry, 19, who was a US Marine, uh, was killed in September of 77 as well. Russell Nelson, 22, October of 77. Robert Winch, 16, November of 77. Tommy Bowling, 20, November of 77. And David Talsma, 19, December of 77. Yeah. Listing these out, you it, really get the numbers here. It was really a big year for him that year. Yeah. As was 76. They were, you know, the, the spree slash cruising years, as he describes them. It's incredibly prolific. Um, and again, you're looking at once a month, in some cases, twice a month. Yeah. I really, I really don't know of any other serial killers that 
went this regularly, you know? Mm. So, and yeah, just once again, the fact that he's like really killing people close to him, he was, it's not like he was ever like flying interstate to like find these victims. He's killing people like in his town, killing people who are employees, storing the bodies in his house, you know, having people over in the house. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's just the weirdest thing to think that this went on for years. One story of someone that escaped Gacy during this time was from 19-year-old Robert Donnelly, who was uh, taken from a Chicago bus stop at gunpoint on the 30th of December, 1977. Gacy drove Donnelly to his home, raped him, tortured him with various devices, and then began to dunk his head into a bathtub filled with water until Donnelly would pass out and then Gacy would revive him. Well, yeah, probably one of the more bizarre kind of um, Gacy events, I guess. Because he'd never done anything like this before. No. No. There seems to be be something in this victim. I don't know what it was. Obviously, I I can't know. But something about, you know, he obviously decided he was deserving of living because he drowned him, revived him, and then dumped his body back near where he found him. And so so horrendous was the torture that Donnelly at one point pled to Gacy to get it over with. And Gacy replied, I'm getting around to it. Do you think maybe that's it? Like maybe because like he wanted to die that Gacy didn't want to do it. Yeah, maybe it all needed to kind of be on Gacy's terms. And once you kind of turn the tables, even if it was just like a flippant statement due to like, you know, being assaulted for hours on end, Maybe that's where the appeal was lost. Yeah, I, I do wonder at this point whether or not he's trying to get caught because he 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 tortures Donnelly for several hours, releases him, takes off the wrists. Donnelly goes straight to the police, um, tells the police. The police question Gacy on the 6th of January in 1978. Um, but he tells the officers that Donnelly was his sex slave and that this was a sex thing. And the police just believed it, though, once again. So yeah. So like, okay. So, yeah, maybe part of it was him trying to push the envelope to see, like, how far he could kind of use his charisma and perceived believability or the taboo nature of homosexuality at the time to, like, you know, to work to his advantage. We then move on to the murders of 1978. In 78, Gacy killed William Kindred, 19, in February of 78. Timothy O'Rourke, 20 who was one of the first victims to be dumped in the nearby river in June of 78. Frank Landigan, 19, November of 78. James Mazzara, 20, November of 78. Mazzara went missing on Thanksgiving. And his final victim was Robert Piast, 16, in December of 78. Now, as to why Gacy got caught, you need to understand the context of what was on the police's radar at the time. Despite multiple reports and multiple complaints, uh, it was actually one of Gacy's victims that got away in March of 78, which first put Gacy on their radar, and the murder of 15-year-old Robert Pierce, um, which was the main factor in Gacy getting caught. Yeah, basically he made two very big boo-boos. One of the first red flags involved a 26-year-old named Jeffrey Rignall, who was um, dragged by Gacy into Gacy's car and then suffered a long period of time of being chloroformed. He had this night of torturous sex with Jeffrey. This in March of 1978. Yeah, where he all night he was, I guess, raping him and then chloroforming him, raping him, chloroforming him. Except then, for whatever reason, he let Jeffrey go and just dumped him um, near where he found him, like the other victim. You said you had a theory as to why Jeffrey was let go. There was this quote from Gacy um, that he drunkenly told his lawyers prior to his official confession, where he said that he was like something like the judge, jury, and executioner. Um, of several people's lives, and I guess he'd made decisions about, like, whether or not they deserved to live. Mm. And I suppose, like, part of it, like, part of me wonders, like, what are the connections between these two, the two later victims, the one that he drowned and revived, and this one that he chloroformed repeatedly and then did it again and again and again, and I guess he withstood it, and then he released him. Like, was there some sort of 
maybe like a threshold of suffering that he almost admired in his victims. That they were survivors. Yeah, that they could, if you can survive this, I'm just going to like take you straight back to where I got you from and, you know, send you on your merry way. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah so I, I don't know, it's interesting. I, I kind of understand that as well. It should be noted that Jeffrey Rignall as well is the, what, I think the oldest. Yeah, 26. He was really, um... 26. He was, was haggard. He was a haggard old, old man. He was in the old folks' home for this um, one, yeah. Which maybe dampened the sexual thrill of the whole thing for Gacy a bit. Also, another interesting thing about Jeffrey, I guess, is that unlike other victims, he was like forcibly kidnapped. And it seemed like the majority of other victims were somehow seduced, whether it by drugs, alcohol, or some other promise by Gacy. Mm. Whereas this was like a violent sort of like, I'm actually going to kidnap you. So maybe he wasn't fully getting off on that aspect of the encounter because he hadn't like won him over like he'd won the other victims over. He'd like forcibly taken him. But he underestimated Jeffrey though because Jeffrey remembered the car and I guess remembered part of the highway that he'd been um, past while he was in the car. And so him and his friends waited for months and months at this exact same highway exit until eventually they saw Gacy's car. Mm. And I guess they noted down the details or whatnot and went to the authorities. Um, So this this was kind of like, yeah, a big step towards Gacy being caught. And that put um, Gacy on the police radar, but was not sufficient for them to have a warrant for his home. And it was the final murder uh, that Gacy committed of 15-year-old Robert Pierce which uh, really um, put the police in the sights of Gacy. Pierced was at a pharmacy where he ran into Gacy and asked about a job with his construction company. There were lots of witnesses seeing the exchange between Pierced and Gacy, and when Pierced went missing, uh, police were told to look at Gacy and search Gacy's address. They got a warrant uh, to search Gacy's home. When they searched his address, they found a number of suspicious items, including a high school ring for the class of 1975, drugs and drug paraphernalia, two driver's licenses which were not issued to Gacy, child pornography, police badges, guns and ammunition, a switchblade, uh, store receipts, and several items of teen-styled clothing in sizes that would not fit Gacy. A lot of suspicious items, but not enough for Gacy's arrest. They connected uh, Gacy with his previous convictions to do with teenage boys and put Gacy under surveillance at this time. It was at this point that Pierce's mother uh, found out information that Robert Pierce, her son, actually had a receipt belonging to a friend of his in his jacket, and the police found this receipt when they searched Gacy's home. Interestingly enough, they got the warrant to search Gacy's home a second time because they caught Gacy in the middle of a drug deal. Just an unrelated drug deal gave them a warrant to search his home. See, if you're going to be a serial killer, just stick to that because it's always the other thing that's going to fuck you up, you know? Mm. When Gacy was informed in custody that they had um, issued a search warrant on his home, he started to have chest pains and was taken to hospital. How convenient. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Gacy was released from hospital later that night, he went back into custody. And at that point, he began to confess about the murder of Robert Pierst. When confronted, he ended up confessing to 32 murders starting in 1974. Although, at various points, he hinted that his body count could be as high as 45. During this time also, Gacy made a number of inquiries which seemed to indicate that there could have been an accomplice. He said things like, have the others been caught as well? And have my associates been contacted? Yes, he was very big on the term associates. Yeah. Brought that up a lot. Which, there's various speculations as to whether or not there might have been accomplices. It's it's confirmed that two of his former employees, I don't want to name names in case I get them wrong and I'm incriminating people. (laughs) But yeah, it's confirmed that two of them were responsible for partially digging the graves and stuff like that. But they claim, I think, to not have known what they were doing. Yeah, I think they were just digging like he was told to dig. 
Yeah, and he got one of them to sprinkle lemon juice in the crawl space. Yeah. At some point. So, you know, they were like doing some things that maybe seemed weird, but I guess your immediate thought wouldn't be like, oh, there's dead people idea. And, and not p- actively participating in the murders. No. Although there are some theorists and journalists that have looked at the case that think that there might have been a number of accomplices who actively participated. And one victim said that they thought um, they, they saw a light turning on and off at the property in another room while um, he was being tortured by Gacy. So, mm. But then we don't know if, for sure if that's like, you know, he was... You know, being, I think this is one of the victims that was being drowned. I think this was the victim that was being drowned. Mm. Um, and so, obviously, like, he might not have been in the most clear Cogent state. state. Of, yeah. And look, there were some people in that house at various points as well. So, you never know if that was actually someone who knew exactly what was happening. Well, and, you know, we know how gutsy Gacy was. I wouldn't put it past him to, like, kill someone while one of his, like, you know, employees who was living there was just, like, going around with their dining yeah. activities, you know? At trial, Gacy um, attempted to use an insanity plea um, to be found not guilty on the basis of insanity. Jury didn't buy it. There was no real evidence that Gacy was insane. One of the defences, I shouldn't laugh, it's not funny, but it's just so absurd. One of the defences was that every single victim had been an accidental death due to, um, like, an auto... What's the term? Auto-asphyxia. Auto-erotic asphyxiation, yeah. yeah. It's like, yes, I think maybe, I believe that if it was one or two, but I don't think you accidentally killed like, yeah. 33 people that yeah. way. Um, during the trial, there's no indications that he had any remorse. Uh, there's one very pithy line that's often quoted where Gacy allegedly said, I should not have been convicted of anything more serious than running a cemetery without a license. Hmm. Um. <laughs> Uh, Gacy was uh, sentenced to be executed. Um, he would spend 14 years in prison awaiting execution. Famously, his last meal was a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> well, there you go. Back to those old KFC managerial roots. <laughs> According to reports, Gacy's last words before his execution were, Kiss my ass." Six of Gacy's victims remain anonymous as they were so decomposed that they could not be fully identified. for listening to the Sinister Sissies podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Sinister Sissies or you can follow me on Twitter at Jared Bartle. That's Jared with a Y. Sam does not believe in social media apparently and you can't find him anywhere but if you send me a message I'll be sure to pass it on to him. I'm not a real person. (laughs) I'm a figment of your imagination. (laughs) Uh, Also, if you feel like it please consider contributing to the patreon it will allow us to provide these episodes more regularly we will be switching to a fortnightly release date this year um i know people want them weekly well if you want them weekly support us on patreon and we can get that going if you want it pay up yeah until next time stay sinister
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.